0: I'd like to invite you to pray with me before we dig into God's Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, this message is a culmination of things that you have taught us this year through your Word, and Sunday school, and Sunday evenings, and personal study, and preparation, and You know, I'm uncomfortable whenever I'm not rooted in one single passage, but instead bouncing around and then presenting an idea versus a passage, and to ask that you would protect me from error, ask that anything in my notes that may, may be askew from what's true, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, prompt me to skip over that part or adjust it midstream, that you would lead us to everything that is true and good. you would speak to us through your word. And we trust you for that. We always do. You always come through. You're always faithful. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm going to share a little bit of the story of how I came to preach this sermon to you this Sunday. I shared this already. The first message, it was going to be four sermons summarizing what God has taught us over the course of this year, especially this summer, our Sunday evening gatherings. But the first Sunday when we were going to begin it, I had sent out an email. I said, everybody try to be here these four Sundays. Try not to miss. And that first one was Hurricane Florence came through. We had buckets and bins around in here catching leaks that uh, have now been fixed. And it was very, very few folks were able to join us. A lot of people were out, didn't have power. A lot of roads were closed. So it ended up being five sermons instead, and I shared a little bit of this during that sermon, but many of you weren't here, so I'm just going to share a little bit about it again, if that's all right with you who were here. Um, A little over a year ago, I encountered a series of intense pastoral challenges. These come and go, um, but for some reason it was just sort of like back to back to back to back to back, really some difficult things for me to figure out as your pastor, and uh, really had me against the ropes. It was, it was a hard time. And in the midst of that, a particularly stressful week, Meredith suggested, why don't you just get, not get away, like don't not get away from me, but why don't you get away, go someplace else, uh, away from your responsibilities right here at the church building and away from your responsibilities at our home. And uh, she suggested Crowder's Mountain, which up to that point, I didn't realize was over there. And so I just did. I grabbed my Bible, this Bible, and my little black journal that I keep, and no other supplies. I was completely unprepared for a hike to the top of Crowder's Mountain. Uh, I was not dressed appropriately for that at all, no water or anything. But I just went, and and with, with the Bible, I left my journal in the car even, I just had the Bible, and meditated on God's Word, where I was in my personal path through the Scriptures at that time, and it was at the end of Hosea as it happened up the mountain, and prayed my way back down the mountain, and uh, by the time I left there, I felt just reassured of God's goodness toward me and toward our church, and I just felt clarity that, you know, we don't have to get bogged down in each individual issue. We need to just keep moving forward with the mission that he's given us, and to a large part, that involves evangelism, discipleship, and missions. But before we could really move into that, I felt as if, based on what I know to be true and my meditation on Scripture, that it would be beneficial for us first to spend some time sharpening our understanding and approach to church membership. And that wasn't what I expected to come away from that trip to the mountain with, but that is what I came back with and prayed through that with other leaders in the church, and it seemed good. So uh, this year, really, that's what we've been talking about uh, to a... Great degree. We started a Sunday school class for some folks interested in joining, and then we started the Sunday evening gatherings through the summer, all aimed at understanding a little bit better, what does it mean to be a local church together? I have found it greatly enriching. Um, I hope you have, and I think it's given me a bit more backbone in terms of how we'll move forward. So these four sermons are kind of the end of that. Once we get done with this sermon today, I'm not planning on talking a great deal more about church membership, except as it comes up when we do the Lord's Supper, we have baptisms, we add new members, our annual meeting, things like that. But sermon wise, I plan, I'm so looking forward to this, I plan to just get back into our, to a book and move sequentially through a book. I'm way more comfortable there. So we approach this question asking four questions. Who is Jesus? Who is Christ? And we answered, he is the Savior and the Lord. And then what are Christians? Christians are those who trust in Jesus as their Savior and follow Jesus as their Lord. And then last week, what is church? It's all the Christians. Local churches being localized gatherings of Christians. And then today, what is church membership? And the simple, I won't leave you in great suspense, a simple sort of literal understanding of church membership is it's just a formal commitment to a local church. No, I said that wrong. It's a formal commitment with a local church. Church membership is a Christian committing to their local church and that local church committing to that Christian. So it's a it's all church membership is is a formal commitment with a local church. But where I've landed in my fuller understanding of it is that church membership is a spiritual discipline. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say spiritual disciplines, but that's that covers the range of Christian practices that help us live in light of what's true. So that covers like daily quiet times. That's a spiritual discipline. Uh, if you have any kind of method to how you pray, that's a spiritual discipline. Some people have a a rhythm of fasting to be close to the Lord and pray. That's a spiritual discipline. And I have come to understand church membership as another spiritual discipline, equally important with those spiritual disciplines. So the statement that I have that kind of crystallizes where I've landed this whole year is church membership is a spiritual discipline that helps Christians obey the communal commands of Christ. And you know it's true because of the alliteration. Church membership is a spiritual discipline that helps Christians obey the communal commands of Christ. And the sermon really is just, we're going to, I'm going to explain what I mean piece by piece based on scripture, and we're going to go backwards. So we're going to start at the end. The commands of Christ. Let's think about the commands of Christ for just a little bit together. If you had access to a time machine and could travel back to when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry those 3 years and you could see him and listen to him what do you think would be most striking to you about him I'm reading a book right now and a character in that book it takes place during the time Of Jesus when he was ministering on the earth and this character Demetrius is a corinthian slave And he happens to be in jerusalem when jesus and his disciples are entering the city before he's going to be crucified We call it the triumphal entry And the crowd is going crazy and they're ripping palm branches from the trees and putting them down in front of jesus and putting their Their coats down in front of him and they're shouting the king is here The king is here and this Corinthian slave, Demetrius, doesn't know what they're talking about. He doesn't know anything about the Jewish scriptures, that they're waiting for a coming king or anything, but he's got to see what this crowd is going crazy about. So he forces his way through the crowd, you know, shouldering his way through, and he makes it to the inside of the circle, and he sort of stumbles through and he looks up and there's Jesus on that donkey that he rode in on. His his disciples kind of around him, sort of trying to keep the crowd under control. And he sees Jesus, and he is as if struck by lightning. And he sort of stumbles back through the crowd to his companion. And his companion says, well, what did he look like? Did he look like a king? And Demetrius said, no. He looked like something more important than a king you remember when we first started studying Mark? That's one of the books we're working through. And we saw people encountering Jesus for the first time in his public ministry. And the crowds were just gathering more and more. And the word was spreading. But do you remember what they said about him? What struck them most about Jesus? Was it how charismatic he was? Was it what a great orator he was? How great of a speaker he was? What a strong leader, how handsome he was, how nice he was, how kind. No, what struck them was his authority. Mark 127. I'm gonna reference a lot of scripture, and I have most of it actually typed, so you don't have to try to f- keep up with me. It should all be projected. Mark 127, after Jesus' first public act of ministry recorded in Mark. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So what was most striking to them, and what, would, what was most striking to Demetrius, and what would be most striking to you in your time machine, would be his otherworldly authority as king of kings and lord of lords. When we started to study Acts, we've studied Acts at the beginning of this year, shaping themes in Acts, trying to understand what it means to be the church. And we observed the disciples turned apostles when they first started to go and turn the world upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ. What did we observe about them? Were they these brilliant, creative, entrepreneurial leaders? No, these were regular guys obeying Jesus. That's one of the things, we made a whole sermon about it, looking through Acts, at how the apostles were just obeying Jesus. They weren't unfurling maps and and dreaming up creative strategic plans. They were just obeying what Jesus told them to do. Because Jesus commands his people. He's not only our Savior. He's our Lord. And we sometimes forget that. Sometimes we emphasize him as our Savior, to the exclusion of him as our Lord. But we need both, like a bicycle needs both wheels or an airplane needs both wings. To really understand and have a relationship with Jesus, you need to understand both. He's the Savior and the Lord. And as Lord, he commands his church. And his church obeys. Some find that Jesus is valuable at the point of salvation and he's gonna be valuable at the point of resurrection, but in between he's really pretty irrelevant. And so we live our lives how we want to live our lives. And then when he comes, we'll pull out the, the get out of hell free card. I'm with Jesus and we're good. But that's not how it works. It's much better than that. Much better than that. Some of us acknowledge him as our Lord verbally, but not in our living. Luke 6.46, one of my favorite statements of Jesus, he was encountering people like this and he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And it's pretty simple, really. If, if I am your Lord, it follows that you would do the things that I said to do and not ignore them. It just makes sense logically, I think. I love Francis Chan's illustration. I'm just going to completely hijack his illustration for this, but he says, if you think about it in terms of a parent and their child, it becomes very obvious. Think if, if I told my child the room is a mess, their bedroom is just a horrible mess, and I said, go clean your room. It's a command from an authority figure to one in authority. And then I come and check an hour later, the room is exactly as messy as it was before I commanded, go clean your room. And I take my child and I say, Didn't you hear me say, go clean your room? And imagine if the child said back to the father, yeah, I heard you. I love that command. That is one of my favorite commands, actually. I've memorized it. Let me think about it. Go clean your room, dad 127. So I've got it memorized. I've got a t-shirt that says, go clean your room, dad 127. I actually had some friends over and we studied that command. What would it look like for us to obey this command? So yeah, I heard your command. I love the command. I'm all about the command. You know, of course the dad would say, well, I don't care about any of that. I've meant for you to do it. Not just enjoy the command and think about the command, do the command. We so easily fall into that same kind of silly mentality as Christians. We know a lot of scripture and we find it neat and we talk about it a lot, but do we just, do we do it? A large part of the Christian life, it isn't just being rescued from our sins. It's also now, because we have the Holy Spirit, obeying Jesus as our Lord. Because we can now. Whereas we couldn't before. We didn't have the spiritual life in us to do it. So Jesus Christ gives commands. That's just a simple fact, and it's good for us to remember. And many of these commands are what I call communal commands. I'm not sure if I'm using that word communal right, but it's the best word I could pull out to explain what I mean. What I mean by that is that many of his commands involve the community of the church. Many of his commands simply cannot be obeyed apart from an ongoing committed relationship with a group of Christians. It's just not possible to obey them without that. I want to ask you three questions this, to try to explain what I mean by this. Three questions for you. First question. Don't answer out loud, just think about it. What is the identifying mark of the church? Or put it another way, what is it that should be noticeable by people outside of the church about the church that identifies the church as the church? What should be noticeable about us as Christians gathered together as a church? Is it our community service? Is that what should be first remarkable about us? We really are out there in the community doing stuff. Is it the preaching? Should that be the most notable thing? The church has awesome preachers. Maybe the music. Maybe our outreach. Well, no, surprisingly, that's not what Jesus taught. John 13, 34 through 35. Listen to what Jesus says. A new suggestion I give to you. No, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Here he's talking to his disciples, his sort of the seeds of the church. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, those other things I mentioned. Those are inevitably going to be a visible aspect of churches. But what Jesus highlights is the way the people of the church love one another in a uniquely Christ-like way. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find almost 60 commands that include the phrase one another. We call them the one another's. I actually have a printout of some of them on the table in the foyer you can grab on your way out. But we're commanded all through the New Testament to be united to one another, to serve one another, honor one another, welcome one another, empathize with one another, speak intentionally to one another in order to build each other up in Christ, protect one another, restore one another when any of us falls into sin. Submit to one another. Now how can we obey these one another commands? apart from each other. It's impossible. It can't be done. Okay, second question. Why do you have the Holy Spirit? So the Bible teaches when Jesus was going to ascend, he told his disciples, it's better for you if I go because God's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Helper with the capital H. Now, why did God send the Holy Spirit? Now there's more than one answer to this, but I want to point your attention to one specific one. in 1 Corinthians 12:7, says, "To each is given the manifestation of the spirit." Why? For our own personal good, for our own personal relationship with God." Well no, no, but that's true. You can make that argument scripturally, but that's not all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you have God, His Spirit, living in you as a Christian, not just for you, but so that you can be a supernatural benefit to your fellow Christians for the common good of the church. And much of what the Holy Spirit would do in you cannot be done apart from ongoing committed relationship with other Christians in what we call the church. It'll be dormant. If if you go to be a monk in the woods, much of what the Holy Spirit would want to do in and through you will be silenced because you won't have your church family there to serve. Okay, the third question How do we grow? How do we grow? You know, we're all Christians. We understand that as new birth, and just like newborn babies should grow, so should new Christians. We should grow. As individual Christians and and as a church. So how how does one grow as a Christian? Well, like the Holy Spirit question, there's multiple things that could be said here. But I want to point your attention to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This ended up being really about the core passage for the whole summer. We came back to it almost every week. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. Be thinking about as we read this passage, how does the Bible teach that Christians grow? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's just all the Christians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith from whom the whole body joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's a lot to take in, but did you pull anything out of there for how we grow as Christians? We grow together, or not at all. We grow together or not at all. God did not design the Christian life to be lived solo. It only works together. Because he's not saving individuals separate from one another. He's saving a people, a nation, a family, a household. What God is doing in you through Jesus Christ is meant to flow through you to your fellow Christians. You are not a receptacle for God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. You're a transmitter of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, a pipeline of it into other people. And it starts with your church family, with your fellow Christians. The church at large is all about loving the lost And I am for loving the lost. I am not saying we shouldn't, but we can't jump over the first stuff that Jesus told us to do, which is love each other, our fellow Christians. It's from that strong base that we can reach the lost. And then we have something to invite them into because they won't be saved as individuals. They'll be saved into the church. They are saved into the nation, into the household, into the family. Now, we have a lot of challenges for living this way. It goes exactly against our cultural conditions. We live in a culture that loves independence and individualism. We love it. We love independence. We love to be free from others. And we love individualism. We like to think of ourselves as singular units, separate and distinct from others. I have my home you have your home I have my car you have your car I have my radio stations on Pandora you have your radio stations on Pandora I have my Netflix which is all the algorithms are calculated to my preferences you have your Netflix all the algorithms preference to your uh, tailored to your preferences I have my schedule you have your schedule You do your thing so long as it doesn't infringe on me doing my thing. Add to that our love for individualism and autonomy and independence, unprecedented mobility and ability to customize. We have unprecedented, in in the history of the church, we have unprecedented mobility and the ability to customize. We live in customized lives. Everything tailored down to our individual preferences. And I, I really enjoy that. I like that I can put my earbuds in and, and pull up a free app on my phone called Pandora and have music that is just fully tailored to just me. I really enjoy that. But we're so used to it that we, that's what we subconsciously think all of life is supposed to be. I'm living Matt Broadway life with everything customized to Matt Broadway preferences. You live your life with yours. And we're mobile. So when it comes to local churches, we just drive right past the 50 churches that don't suit our preferences to the one that comes closest. And we'll, stay, we'll hang out there so long as it continues to suit those preferences. But if they don't, we'll just go shopping again and we'll find another one that does. A little exercise to think about this. How many churches did you pass on your way here this morning? That doesn't work for everybody because I walked through the woods over here. And many folks came from this neighborhood. A lot of us live very close, but I bet many of you pass at least one other church, maybe two. The further away you live, the more. There are many streams working against us, obeying Christ's communal commands in our culture. It's not natural. That's why we need spiritual discipline. The same reason we need discipline to take care of our physical bodies We need spiritual disciplines to take care of ourselves spiritually. I mean, if you just sort of go with the flow physically and nutritionally, what's going to be the end result? If you just go with your preferences, go with what's handy, go with what's convenient, it's not going to go well for you. We have to discipline ourselves with our diets. We have to discipline ourselves with our exercise. At least we know we should, though we may not do it. It's the same for our spiritual lives. One of the speakers at the conference likened it to a down escalator. He said the, the Christian life in a fallen world is like walking up a down escalator. You've got to keep working at it to make progress. And if you stop, you don't stand still. Just like with our physical bodies, you decline, you atrophy. Get spiritually flabby, same as physically flabby. And so we have... Verses like 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, they needed this back then just like we need it now. Train yourself for godliness. That word can be translated discipline. Train or discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I have a theory. Uh, this is a Matt Broadway theory, not straight from scripture. But I think the more important the priority, the easier it is to ignore it. I think the more important the priority in our lives, the quieter that priority tends to be. So if you think about think about three priorities that we pretty much all have in some form or another, work, family, So we have our work life, our family life, our spiritual life. Let's just think of those as three different priorities. Which one of those tends to be the loudest, the most insistent, and the hardest to ignore? I think we would all say our work life. The, The consequences of ignoring our responsibilities there are immediately felt. We just can't escape them. Probably the next in line would be our family life is probably a little bit easier to ignore because the consequences there, they're going to be there, but it's not going to be the next morning at work necessarily. You, you know, we can let our family life slide for a little bit before we start to feel the consequences. Yet I think we would all agree that our family life is a more important priority than our work life, but the family life is not always yelling at us. And then probably beneath that would be our spiritual life. I think we would all agree it is the most important priority, our relationship with God, but it's the quietest. It's the easiest to ignore. The consequences are more subtle. Often they're not noticeable until quite some time has passed. And we know this is the case, and that's why we have disciplines for ourselves. We develop routines, habits, things to help us stay in line. And we have a whole suite of spiritual disciplines to help us keep that As the top priority, we know we need to read our Bibles. And so, the very most mature Christians, I guarantee you, have some discipline in their life to make sure they read their Bibles. They don't just leave it up to if they feel like it. I guarantee most of them have a routine in the morning, at night, somehow they've developed a habit through self discipline to read their Bibles. Same with prayer, same with evangelism. And it's the same with the communal commands, what we've been commanded to do together. So that's why I think membership in a local church is a spiritual discipline, like having a regular quiet time is a spiritual discipline. It's not the law. You're not going to find it. I'm not going to find a verse that says you must join a local church in a formal commitment. Because it's not law, so we're not going to be legalistic about it. But I think you're going to have a very, very difficult time obeying Jesus' communal commands without some kind of commitment to a specific group of Christians. It's just going to be too easy and tempting to slip away from it. My classic example of this, and this is not going to be projected, is 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 7. I know I've talked about this before, but I like talking about it, and I think it's relevant. This passage we always read at weddings, but it's not about romantic love. It's about the love that we're commanded to have for each other in the church. It says love is patient. Okay, right there. There's a whole list, but right there. Love is patient. Now, why does that need to be said? Because God knows that a big part of what he's trying to develop in us requires us to love each other the way Christ loved us, which includes being patient with each other. What occasion do you have to be patient with somebody? Well, it's when they test your patience. He goes on, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Well, what occasion would love have to not insist on its own way? When yielding to somebody else's way. It goes on, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Well, what occasion would love have to show itself in a resistance toward irritability? When the beloved, when the person that we're loving is irritating. And it goes on like that. It it bears all things. It endures all things. That's the love that God is developing in us. If we are forever slipping loose of situations with our fellow Christians that are difficult, we're always going to be short-circuiting what God's trying to develop in us. I mean, why would we stick with our brothers and sisters in Christ when it gets difficult to endure if we had no commitment to each other? See, discipline is the route to freedom. And when we're kids, we don't think that's the case. But as adults, we know that's true. If you want to be free to play the piano like Terry did this morning or the guitar like Lee did, you're going to have to discipline yourself to practice. And if you want to be free to live the Christian life, you're going to have to discipline yourself. It doesn't happen by accident. I like to play tennis. I went many years without playing tennis at all, no practice or discipline whatsoever. And then I just sort of went back out and picked up a racket. And it is very frustrating. I'm just not good anymore (laughs) because I, I stopped my disciplines. So it's not legalism, it's discipline, and it's the route to the joy and peace that God means for us to have. So I'll leave you with three questions. First question, are you obeying Christ? Is that a part of your Christian life, obedience to Jesus? Second question, are you obeying the communal commands of Christ? So specifically, are you taking seriously the things he's told you to do, that require you to be in relationship with other Christians? And then third, are you a member of the church? I want you to seriously consider if you're not joining the church, committing with the church, the church committing to you, you committing to the church, as a spiritual discipline to help you obey the communal commands of Christ. And I'll leave you with Hebrews ten twenty four through 25. You have to read this verse anytime you talk about church membership. involvement in church. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near.